Welcome to Afterthoughts, everybody. This is our recommend or refute episode. You know exactly what happens in this. We go around the table and we talk about things that we have seen in the past week or, you know, just recently and talk about whether or not we'd recommend them or refute them. Uh, and we have a special guest with us. Uh, it's my brother, Mark Garcia. Mark, welcome. Hey, thanks, John's Sean. more handsome, more intelligent brother. Uh, it's true. It's I true. Mean, my dad's told me that ever since I was born. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's true. I can verify. And, I have the uh, receipts. <laughs> and of course, I am your host, John Garcia. Uh, and with us at the table as well is Michael Dixon. What's up, guys? Excited to get into the recommend to refute this week. Yeah, yeah. And we will be starting with our esteemed guest. You know, I know you've probably listened to the previous episode and know that he's he's lost a bit of favor with us uh, because <laughs> he recommended 1114. But he has a chance to redeem himself here by recommending or refuting something and uh, appropriately defending such a stance. Uh, so, Mark, what do you got for us? Yeah, so I'm going to recommend the 1114 sequel, 1115. <laughs> Yeah. Damn it! You said you wouldn't do this. Is nah. that do three deaths happen simultaneously in eleven fifteen? No, does actually, it take place in the same world one minute late, just centered around an it's event? It's in the eleven fourteen CU. It, it, it literally yeah. is eleven fourteen, but with one more death. Like literally, <laughs> yeah. they just one add, more minute. It, it really was just an extra sequence. They did it with like a straw dummy, so like it kind of <laughs> looks like Helen Hunt, but not really. And then that's where they go. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Fuck that shit. This week, I'm I'm recommending the menu. Twelve customers total. Twelve fifty ahead. What are we eating? A Rolex. Tonight will be madness. Welcome. We'll endeavor to make your evening as pleasant as possible. Here we are, family. Yes, we harvest. We ferment. We gel. They gel. We gel. This menu. The pictures. They're of us. This guest list. How do they get these? It's not good. This entire evening. Jesus Christ. This is just theater. It's stagecraft. We're leaving now. Has been painstakingly planned. This is real, isn't it? What the hell is going on? We now offer you a 45-second head start. This is what you're paying for. Get out of my way. It's all part of the menu. It's okay. No, we're gonna die today. Yes, we are. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I had been wanting to see it for a long time uh, since we saw the preview for it, and uh, we finally got to sit down and watch it this last week, and we fucking loved it. It was really, really interesting, just from the perspective of um, the way it was shot, as well as the general plot line, and then the final twist at the end that um, that ultimately kind of encapsulated the movie we really just enjoyed it from from beginning to end um it was a nicely shot film so yeah i, I what, definitely recommend it well what exactly is it about tell the folks yeah yeah absolutely so so essentially um uh i'm terrible with names um so if you all know the actress um, Anya Taylor Taylor Joy. Joy. thank you <laughs> Anya taylor joy there you go terrible with names for actors and actresses um but Anya ralph Taylor fines john leguizamo there, yeah john Nicholas i remember Holtz. john leguizamo <laughs> But uh, yeah, because he's Luigi Mario. Exactly. <laughs> the great Hong Chow. Yes. Um, yeah. Anya Taylor-Joy finds herself uh, as a plus one to um, a essentially what seems to be from the beginning, um, this really kind of ornate, wealthy style, like, uh, I guess, getaway for a seven course meal. 
Um, and it starts out regularly enough where it's like, yeah, here is, you know, this particular um, dish served this way and and everything seems normal, hunky dory. And then around the middle of the film, there's this huge pivot where it's like, no, that's not what we're doing at all. Um, and it's really, really interesting how they kind of like present not just um, the chef and his staff, um, but also like all of the supporting characters and and their ties to the chef and his staff. Um, and so ultimately, Anya Taylor-Joy finds herself in this life or death kind of scenario where she's trying to just get the fuck off of this island um, and get away from everything that's happening while her date is just completely just infatuated with the chef and everything he's putting forth for them, even if it means that people are dying in the process of it. Um, I, I don't want to spoil too much. I, I don't know if that's how y'all do it. Do y'all care about spoilers? Uh, we just kind of back end them at times. Okay. I think if, yeah, we, we usually don't spoil stuff on recommender review, but we, we can, we break that sometimes. Okay. So whatever I mean, you want to do. I, the trailer, I feel kind of like portrayed it as a life or death matter for all the guests. And it's revealed like midway through essentially that like, it's not just you're eating food here. Like they're going to people be people who die. Um, so it, it just does this really interesting and intricate twist. Um, on the whole thing, but like it's very well directed, very well acted, um, and we we just absolutely loved it. Yeah, that's cool. I I liked it too. I think um, Anya Taylor Joy's is really good in it, and I like how they kind of eviscerate foodie culture. And you know, Nicholas Holt is this guy who's just obsessed with you know like knowing where all the ingredients are from, and you know, being able to taste all the spices that are used, and just like. <laughs> this weird chef fanboy that is super annoying and, and just kind of plays that part really well. Um, I, I always love Hong Chao. Like we talked about the whale a few weeks ago. I think she was really good in this as kind of the sous chef mm -hmm. to Ray Fiennes, who is kind of making a lot of things happen behind the scenes. And, um, you know, uh, you compared this movie earlier uh, off, uh, off mic to triangle of sadness. That was one of my favorite movies of last year. I think, they both have similar themes around kind of comedies that make fun of, you know, the the ultra wealthy class. And, um, you know, I think Triangle of Sadness did it better, but I liked the menu a lot. So uh, definitely echo your your recommend there. Yeah, it also, even though it's not uber related to it, reminded me a bit of Pig, okay, um, which y'all had yeah. covered as well. Oh, you know, like just some of the sequences in that where you have um, the the chef that he goes to and and. He has like this huge presentation for this meal, but he's kind of lost the essence of what made cooking and everything magical in the first place. So. Yeah, uh -huh. I could see that. I, I this movie, the menu, the more that I think about the menu, the more devastating it seems to me because Nicholas Holt's character, I relate to a little too much, uh, <laughs> especially for our listeners out there. You've listened to me give treatments for several movies, never having made one. And <laughs> that's kind of the same shit where this is, you know, when I finally make my movie, it's just going to be called John's whatever the fuck this is or something. Yeah. And it'll be picked apart and then I'll, you know, whatever happens to me happens to me. Um, 11, 16. Yeah, that's, that kind of, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I'm going to complete the trilogy. <laughs> but yeah, like it picks so much at that kind of wanting to be part of status, wanting to be part of this elite. Um, and Nicholas Holt's character always rings in my head with, all of the critiques he gives and the flavors he picks apart and then him having no real actual understanding of how to synthesize these at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Spoilers, everybody. But at the same time, 
I honestly don't think this movie can be spoiled. It's delightful to watch, even if you know yeah. what's going to happen. That, um, yeah, I obviously the third echo at this table saying, yeah, you should watch it. I put off watching it because it came out the same time as Triangle of Sadness. And I was like, this seems a little too much at once. The same thing. It was like Deep Impact and Armageddon. Yeah. Uh, not to really compare them. <laughs> there but... cannot be enough Eat the Rich movies. We need <laughs> yes. more Eat the Rich movies. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and then finally, when it came out on HBO Max, I was like, you know what? I'll watch it. Sure. Why not? But the trailer totally undersells what it is. Um, and the movie itself is something completely different. I think one of my friends was like, we're going to go see the menu and she's huge into horror movies and the trailer itself sells it like it's a horror movie, uh, much more than a thriller slash yeah. social commentary. I don't know if she ever went and saw it and was disappointed by it. I would hope not. But when I watched <laughs> it, I was like, that was fucking great. That was like a seven course meal in a movie. Yep. Uh, and it was <laughs> food think, for thought. Yeah. yeah. I think Nicholas Holt's character is interesting too because he he basically like it's making fun of fanboy culture more broadly and it's mm -hmm. like the movie is specifically making fun of rich person foodie culture bullshit but like Nicholas Holt's character could be applied to anything that like dudes get way too excited about and into. <laughs> oh my god. It's laughable. <laughs> it's actually fucking laughably good. Mm. It's good. Mm. I think I prefer just the oyster though. Love oysters. No. No, it's the balance of the products. You need the mouthfeel of the mignonette. Please don't say mouthfeel. And you could extrapolate that toward lots of, of things. Um, and I, I think the movie, I, I liked the movie. The only things that I would criticize is I think there are a lot of side characters that we don't really get to know. And like, it feels like, oh, you know, they, they create, there are like, what, seven or eight tables of people at this dinner and they kind of touch on each of them very briefly, but they don't, the movie didn't seem to really care about them. And I would almost have rather either it had been a longer movie and you explore those characters more fully, or you just make it a more intimate setting. And it's like, you know, oh, there's only six people here and, and we're only going to care about them. It felt a little bit stretched to me in, in parts there where they were trying to rope in these characters, but they seemed just to be doing it because they felt like they had to. Um, so that's the only criticism I would I would have of the film, but I think overall it was it's definitely worth watching. It's a good movie. So. Yeah, yeah. A little uh, one of the things I did enjoy about it was like the small pops of humor that are kind of dispersed. I mean, really, literally mm -hmm. sprinkled throughout. Like there's a sequence where all the male characters are told to run, um, and the winner gets a special dish that is also provided. and And the cool thing about this movie is with each dish that is presented. It's always basically the ingredients are told and like shown on the on the screen. And it's just it adds additional humor at certain points where otherwise it might be like a really bleak affair. It's like an Iron Chef. Mm. Yeah. Uh, where they just break down what it is. Yeah. 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 So but I, I do agree with you, Dixon. I think that um, that that if they had either chosen to have fewer tables um, because they did kind of focus primarily on like the food critic table and um, and then like. Obviously, Anya Joy Taylor's. Um, Anya Taylor Joy. I'm oh, sorry, Anya Taylor Joy. Again, terrible with names of actors and actresses. <laughs> Anya Taylor Joy's um, character, and then also the man that she had been involved with. Like they really chose to focus primarily on some of those tables as opposed to some of the other ones. Um, to to really let you get to know the characters. This is one of those things where I feel like Triangle of Sadness. I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but does a similar thing where they're you have to have an effigy of some sort for every archetypal wealthy person. And this movie was like really trying to swing for the fences in the runtime it had. Mm. That's the whole 
crux of it. Like, yeah, if they had had longer runtime, the triangle sentence is longer, could, so it can yes, flesh that it can out. flesh yeah. that out. Yeah, this one it, it it didn't have that same runtime, so it didn't have that luxury of trying to to make it happen. Instead, you just have to assume naturally from the discussion points we're given. These are these characters. This is what's happening to them. It almost feels in a way not to cheapen it, not to cheapen the series I'm about to reference, but like a Twilight Zone episode mm. where they literally tell you, here's the moral of what happened and here's why this person, you know, endured whatever happened to them. And you're like, oh, OK, I get it. It's a good social commentary, but it's a little forced or fast. Like yeah. that's kind of the the juxta or the crux of it. Yeah. So. One, one other f- final um, point that I do really love about the movie is that the intricacy of the meals yes. degrades as you go through the movie. And yeah. it's actually uh-huh. like a very joyful thing to see as it happens. They also um, elevate common food at the end of the movie, which I, do. which I liked where it's like one of the characters at the end is like, just give me a goddamn hamburger. Like I'm so tired of all this bullshit yep. and all of this, like all the showmanship around all this food or you're deconstructing bullshit. Uh, and then they put a lot of care into just making a really good hamburger and showing it. And common people can have good taste too. And it's mm-hmm. not, you don't have to go to a restaurant that like, you know, has its prices written out in words to uh, actually, you know, have a good meal. And or to, doesn't yeah. have prices at all. Or, right. or yeah. has yeah, the yeah. word fucking it's reduction like in yeah. whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, lobster used to be a, a, a common person's dish and then the fucking yeah. rich took it. Marketing. Yep. Fucking marketing. Yeah. Yep. And then again, to your point, the, the degradation to like just cooking that fucking hamburger kind of parallels pig in like the mm-hmm. care he takes and puts into that final meal. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it just it's 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 good for so many reasons. But yeah, you have me excited to see Triangle of Sadness now because we really like this movie. So hopeful for that. Um, Awesome. Well, Dixon, what you got for us? Yeah. So uh, John came over to my place uh, over the weekend and we hung out and drank too much whiskey. Played some NFL Blitz. uh, We did. We played some NFL Blitz, (laughs) um, some uh, Conquer and uh, some some old N64 classics. And we watched a double feature. Uh, so we decided, you know, I, I usually try to watch good movies and John usually tries to watch dog shit. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, hey, we man, just, some people like dog shit like 1114. <laughs> some, some people do, uh, you know, but we decided to do a double feature of a Criterion collection Blu-ray from my uh, Blu-ray collection. And John brought over some schlock from his collection. and. We were looking through the ones that John brought over and decided to try to find a like good movie from my collection that would be an interesting double feature for that. So uh, I'm going to talk about the first movie that we watched in our double feature, which is the 1965 Martin Ritt directed film, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. The book the world could not lay down now stands with the great motion pictures of all time. John le Carre's magnificent best-selling novel, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. What the hell do you think spies are? How big does a cause have to be before you kill your friends? The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, the real no-holds-barred inside story of espionage. From one side of the Iron Curtain to the other. Of Lamus, the spy who started it all. The suspense and the excitement, sheer, naked. Unforgettable. 
Uh, so this is a really interesting movie. It is a spy drama around the Cold War, uh, taking place around um, you know Berlin during the era of of the Wall and all of that, uh, with a, a British spy played by Richard Burton, who is um, you know kind of a a working class spy who just like wants to do the jobs that are given to him, and the um, you know the the higher ranking people are always kind of trying to manipulate him and put him into situations that maybe he's not given all the information that he needs, but he's just like, I don't care. Just like, give me a job to do. I'm a field agent. I need to go out and, and, you know, just do something. And so they put him on this mission where he is, um, he believes that he has is tasked with one thing, but that may not be the intentions of his handlers. Um, and basically th this is like right in the wake of the James Bond frenzy. There have been, you know, three or four Sean Connery, James Bond movies at this point. Uh, the, the James Bond novels are all over the place. And it's this, in this era of really glamorizing spy movies and making, uh, you know, uh, intelligence and spy work seem really glamorous. And this, they, like, this would be a fun career to do. You get to, you know, make wry remarks to bad guys and and fuck beautiful women. Meet and, women named Pussy Galore. Uh huh. Yeah, <laughs> and get Pussy Galore. And uh, you know that that's the the idea that we have in the zeitgeist at this point is that this is this incredible profession that would be the most fun thing to do. And the spy who came in from the cold pours cold water on all of that. It's written by a guy who was in British intelligence at the time that he wrote the book, and like the book almost didn't get published because British intelligence had to okay it. And so he basically tried to write it as accurately as possible without being too accurate so that the British censors wouldn't block it. Mm. Um, and so this came out, the book came out in the early 60s. It became a huge success, was on the top of the American bestseller list, and then ended up getting optioned into a film. And, you know, 65, this is like, we're kind of starting to reject black and white cinema, moving into, into color. And Everything is all these flashy movies, and this is just kind of a, a cold, hard, realistic film that is shot in black and white. It's shot beautifully, but it's not like super flashy in the way it's done. It, it feels more realistic and blunt in the way that the movie is shown, and it feels like it, it, it's kind of nihilistic in the fact that, like, like, what are we doing? Why are we spending all these resources spying on other countries and doing all this dumb shit that's just kind of wasting money and not actually solving any global problems and getting us to be a better, more peaceful world. It's just stoking tensions and, and causing more issues. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a really interesting movie. I, I, I want to watch it again at some point. I thought there were points where it was a little bit dry and a little bit slower, but I think in a second watch, it would kind of come together a little bit better. So I want to revisit it at some point, but I definitely enjoyed it on the first watch and uh, would recommend people check it out. Yeah, I mean, I was there. I can say I would recommend this movie as well. When I go into a spy movie, with the exception of James Bond, I don't anticipate knowing what the fuck's going to happen. Mm. I treat it like a noir. You, you never really know which character's doing what. You know, James Bond, you always know. Fucking James Bond's going to beat a dude up and put a woman in harm's way. That's usually what James <laughs> Bond does. Uh, and then at the end of the day, he's going to fucking win and they're going to play that triumphant sound here. It was like, 
it's kind of like following somebody who is the real life James Bond on their day to day. They go to the liquor store and buy a bunch of booze because their whole cover story is being a drunkard. <laughs> and then they get into a fist fight because they have to show fucking public display of aggression. And the entire movie, you're just like, why would you do this? But part of it is, is he maintaining that cover story? Like, or is or he are just you actually depressed? in that? Yeah, yeah. Are you depressed? You really don't know. And it's that emotional tension rather than the espionage itself that kind of grips this. And so the entire time we watched it, I was really fixated on figuring out. I felt like no matter what I tried to think about, the movie was a few steps ahead of me. And even then, characters in the movie were even more steps ahead of the movie itself and uh, how it was going yeah. to progress. And it was just fascinating to watch that happen. Um, yeah, if you come from like a background where you've seen all the James Bonds, this is a really interesting contrast to dive into uh so i, I yeah i echo that recommendation um it, it, i would kind of want to explore the novel too i'm really curious if they changed certain things or if it was just a one yeah it would be interesting like this this guy has written several spy novels that were successful he wrote tinker Ta tinker taylor soldier spy i was just about mm. to ask about that i was like so how yeah. does this compare to tinker taylor soldier spy i haven't seen that actually but um yeah this was kind of his first like big novel that got him on the scene and then he continued to write spy novels from there but yeah i i imagine like what i've heard of tinker taylor, taylor soldier spy it sounds kind of similar in the pacing and um you know the the themes but i haven't seen that movie so i can't say gotcha so you you mentioned like the cinematography being like awesome are there any like techniques or anything specifically that just drew you to it dixon or or was it just from start to finish just really well shot it's just, it's really well done. And the opening shot was really cool. There's a long unbroken take, like looking over the Berlin wall uh -huh. and kind of panning across the, the area near it, seeing like the shops and the government officials walking around it during the opening credits. That's really well done. And then the rest of the movie, I, I didn't feel like there were a lot of innovative techniques or anything. It was just really well staged, really well lit. The black and white was perfect for the story and it just looked really good on screen and the blocking and business was great too yeah like the characters moving around felt really natural it had this kind of realism to it whereas in like you would comparing again to james bond the blocking and business in a james bond is very staged mm. like james walks over and he stirs his drink and he's gonna say something charismatic and you can tell but in this it's like contemplative movements from every character and it feels really natural and that's what lures you into that is this guy actually playing the role of a spy or is he actually just really depressed where he is is he really tormented in his current situation with british intelligence so yeah and, and burton in the lead role like that's a guy that was you know a shakespearean actor and very like boisterous and over the top and everything that he did and in this movie they had to really reel him in and be like you know just do less than you're doing in, in every take and he gave a really good performance of a, a contemplative person who is dealing with a lot of shit in his life and his job that are kind of coming together and I, I feel like it it wouldn't have worked if they had like if Burton had enough power to just do what he wanted and go go wild and Shakespearean and over the top, the movie wouldn't have connected the the way that it did. So Martin Ritt did a great job directing the film and, and kind of making sure that everybody gave him what they needed to. Yeah, I, I definitely have an appreciation for those movies that are made that feel a little more 
um, grounded and less overproduced. So like it sounds like you're saying, especially John, compared to like the James Bond movies that can feel overproduced and more just intentional in terms of their pacing as well as their blocking and everything that this is going to feel way more just like everything is natural and there is like a groundedness that really can kind of resonate with viewers when you see a movie like that. So there's a certain in, in classic movies, like, and I think of like black and white films, um, from sixties and before, um, I have a tendency to, to think about our dad and whether or not he would enjoy them. And this is one that I really don't know. I don't know how he would feel about it because he likes predictability to an extent. He wa- he's watched all the James Bonds. He's told me about them several times. Yeah. Um, and it's just one of those things where I'm like, if I showed him this, would he know that it existed? Or would he be put off by the fact that it's, it's way more of a haze? There's such a fog in the narrative and how it rolls out that when you watch it again, and I'm sure it's equally satisfying. Like The more that I think about it, the more I want to go back to it. I'm sure Dixon, you're having kind of similar sentiments. Yeah. But it is one of those where like, I wonder how many people went to an audience like in an audience in the sixties went and saw this and were put off by it or it didn't do well when it yeah. came out and it's since, you know, become a classic in, in later years, but it, yeah, it, it didn't do very, I think it made its budget back, but that was about it. I figured cause it came out during the boom of the beach flicks when all of those <laughs> kids were out on the beach with fucking tony curtis that's who it was yeah yeah. elvis and tony curtis and whoever uh yeah mid-60s it's it's a terrible time for a spy movie during the sexual revolution unless you're james bond and you're getting all kinds uh but yeah so the spy who came in from the cold or is it a spy who came in from the The spy who came in from the cold the spy who came in from the cold so john do you want to talk about the second movie of our double feature Yes, the spy who came in from the schlock, uh, <laughs> as it were. We so, picked the spy who came in from the cold because it mirrored this movie perfectly. Yes, so. that's right. And this movie um, is a 1986 uh, film that's trying to be a James Bond. So it's inspired by James Bond. It's not trying to compete with James Bond. I, I would guess. say it's ripping off James Bond. It's ripping off James yeah. Bond. You can say that as well. Uh the, the movie is 1986's Unmasking the Idol. No matter how overwhelming the odds. No matter how great the danger. One man will succeed. Between the wrong and right. But he's drawn. What's your name? Jacks. Duncan Jacks. No matter how tight the squeeze. Puts a little excitement in your life, don't you think? Duncan, this is serious. What are we going to do? No matter how high the adventure. You should have made an appointment. No matter how deadly the traps. Jacks and Boone must save the world, unmasking the idol which stars Ian Hunter as Duncan Jacks. If you've never seen a picture Jax, of Ian Hunter, Duncan Jacks. Duncan Jacks. Yeah. <laughs> and at one point in the movie too, I remember yell- loudly saying like, Oh fuck you. Because he walked up to a crafts uh, table and they were like, where are you placing your bets, sir? And he's like, double O and seven. Very good, sir. And I was like, Oh <laughs> fuck off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's very blatant about its uh, influences. Yes. Yeah, so it wears we everything on its sleeve. Uh, so Duncan Jacks is basically James Bond. It's like if, um, 
a melted wax figure of Chevy Chase was James Bond. Just try to picture that in your minds. And that's who uh, Duncan Jacks is. He's like losing and, his hair, but they try to pretend that he's not. And it's like, you know, Sean Connery, they just gave him a toupee. Yeah. Right. And they just let him do that. And like, we're just going to. No, we, yeah, we're going to cover that yeah, up. Yeah, this like, guy, it's like, no, you're definitely, yeah, there's some early male pattern baldness going <laughs> on here for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and so Duncan Jacks, he's an international spy, a man of mystery. The movie opens with him pulling off a heist, and it's like the most inconventional evacuation of a scene. He jumps from a building into a pool where he's surrounded by goons and you're like, Oh (laughs) fuck, what's going to happen. And then suddenly a giant balloon emerges from the pool and lifts him above to the top of this tower he's on (laughs) where he changes into a tuxedo James Bond style and then goes and places a bet and has sex with a woman named China. Uh, and th- that's like how the movie opens. And it even has a James Bond theme song style thing. Yeah. And we're like, wait a minute, where did that balloon come from? He just yeah. ascends from the swimming pool with He's like a weather a balloon. Ninja yeah. with chainmail <laughs> face on. That's like where, it co- yeah, that's where all of that happens. Um, I've neglected to mention too, that, uh, after this all happens, um, Duncan Jacks is a, a, a special agent has a special sidekick. Mm. And I'm not just talking about the Robin to his Batman. I'm talking about something closer. It's a baboon. It's named Boone and he carries it everywhere like a toddler (laughs) just in his arms. In any given scene, he's getting a debriefing where they're like, you know, Duncan, if uh, if the Russians get these nuclear warheads, that could spell out trouble for everybody. And he's like, my God, we'll have to do something about it. And there's a fucking baboon just sitting in his arms. Always yeah. says that just looking at everybody. Like, when do I get the banana that I'm here for? <laughs> um, he has to assemble a, a heist team. I believe, uh, at this point we were really drunk when we were finishing yeah. this movie. Uh-huh. Um, but he has to pull together a heist team consisting of the whale played by Brendan Fraser. We all know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> who is like, Basically, it looks like Jack Black from the Jumanji movie, the sequel. Um, and then like a few other characters. I don't remember what their quirks were. He has like a martial arts master who teaches him and is also the cue that invents shit for him. Uh, so he knows Kung Fu and he has a bunch of cool shit and he needs to go stop these Russians from getting nuclear warheads because he's the James Bond of this universe with a baboon in his arms. Um, really straightforward plot. We're yeah. all together on this. Uh <laughs> It's like somebody really liked James Bond movies and also really liked Every Which Way But Loose. Hey, babe, what do you think of Clint Eastwood? Oh, I think of him a lot. (laughs) Can you imagine Clint Eastwood punching out a wise guy or laying out a bunch of guys who get out of line? Of course I can. Can you picture him falling hard for a sweet young thing who's got her eye on him? Oh, sure. That's easy. Can you see him allowing a woman to beat up on him? Oh, now you're putting me on. Well, what do you think of Clint Eastwood confiding his deepest, darkest secrets to an orangutan? Now you're really kidding me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And he's like, what if James Bond had a monkey friend? And he just ran around doing monkey shit. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and, And like... It just kind of goes from there. There are plot beats that are very predictable, but then there are other things that aren't as predictable because it's just like bad writing. So for instance, where does an idol come into any of this was what Dixon and I were asking ourselves about an hour and a half into this movie. (laughs) Um, And then they're suddenly in this room where Duncan Jacks is about to stop 
the bad guy who is like the Scarlet Ninja. I don't Wait, fucking no, They remember. were trying to like steal the gold from the bad guy so the bad guy couldn't like buy oh, nuclear right. weapons or something. There's a bad guy named Goldtooth. Go yeah. figure <laughs> that a James Bond homage would have somebody named Goldtooth. And they're like, oh, we're going to save the world by stealing a bunch of gold. But while okay. he's distracted from the gold stealing, we'll disable these nuclear armaments and whatever the fuck uh, else happens. Yeah. Uh, then in the middle of this heist, they're like, wait a minute. All of the statues around us in this room, these idols are all masked in some kind of stone <laughs> painting. And then they're like, shit, one of these must be the idol. And they like, don't just unmask it to be a golden idol. They break its head off like a pinata and jewels spill out. No, but it also, is golden. Oh, it is. Okay. They, yeah. They no. pull it. There's a pool in like the throne room. <laughs> Where the piranhas of the sit. evil guy. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Piranhas with freaking laser beams attached to their heads <laughs> sit in this pool. It's just the fucking fever dream of James Bond tropes. Yeah. The bad guy just like sentences people to the piranha pool when he the, wants the to kill them. The bad guy pushes an old woman on her wheelchair down a ramp into the piranha pool. Yep. And it's like comically played up where they're like, I guess you're taking a trip to the pool. <laughs> like, I just do that. Um, no, but we were talking just, about like they, they pull the golden idol out of the pool but all of a sudden there's like a pulley system attached to the ceiling that wasn't there 10 no continuity, seconds ago no <laughs> care for continuity in this movie at all uh, yeah anyways um, you can probably understand how we were just like in awe of this absurdity not only you have James Bond not only you have James Bond villains but you have a fucking baboon that at one point plays a really critical plot point in distracting a bunch of Cubans I think from sure. noticing that it's that there's a heist being pulled off it's doing flips and throwing bananas and then dynamite <laughs> <laughs> fucking whatever it can understand English as a radio and a walkie-talkie where everybody talks to it uh yeah it, it's a fucking bonkers movie and I am so glad vinegar syndrome restored it and put it on my shelf <laughs> I so, can't wait to watch this again the the real question John gun to your head uh-huh if you had to hand a film to our father yes between Dixon's recommendation oh, and yours no <laughs> and and your life was tied to dad enjoying it the most oh, no. fuck. oh god this is hard this one hold on let me think about this. <laughs> would your dad unironically enjoy yes. unmasking the idol yes <laughs> oh. he would he would really fucking i think he would fucking love that movie but i it's unmasked. I got to go with unmasking as much as I think yeah. the spy that came in from the cold would be a great movie for him. And he would be challenged by it and kind of interested in it. Unmasking the idol where he is in his life right now, considering we watched major pain two months ago. Uh, I think that he would enjoy unmasking the idol for how absurd it was. And he would probably laugh at the jokes that Dixon and I were both like, oh, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it would get the highest praise from our dad in that he would turn to John and say, I need to get that one put on the Plex server, son. Uh. Yes. And then later, like a month or two, he would be at a social function with family members and trying to tell them what this movie was <laughs> and failing to do so. Yeah. But then eventually falling back to you just had to be there yeah it was just great it's fantastic i'm like, gonna send your dad this episode one of those, uh, <laughs> uh he he'll see he'll probably chastise me yeah. for <laughs> for thinking he wouldn't love a movie from the 60s um but we'll see are you know. recommending this john i am recommending this movie um it was entertaining 
It had a lot of moments that had us in awe of the fact that they were yes, trying to do what they were fucking doing. The fact that five minutes in, you were like, where the fuck did a balloon come from? Uh-huh. And we were both just incredulously from there riding along. I called who the villain was at the end, and I was very upset with myself uh-huh. that it was as predictable as I thought it would be. Uh, but it was just one of those things where we look back on it and that was a good double feature. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a fun roller coaster. We definitely had it up in the first half and then it was a down <laughs> and kind of a backup. Uh, uh my yeah. neck has not recovered from, from the whiplash, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I would also recommend it. Like I, uh, on letterbox, I gave it a half star and a like, <laughs> you, you know, and that's how like, I, I that's like a lot of movies that I watched with John. Yeah. That, that's how I fall on them. It's like, this movie is absolute dog shit, but <laughs> you know, if you watch it with your friends and have some booze and have a good time, it, it's, it's a fun watch. So. Yeah, I, I think that is the showgirls paradox. Um, I think that's the official name for that is the showgirls paradox. Um, yeah, I, I think that a movie can be absolutely terrible and dog shit. But if you're with the right people or in the right mindset, it can be just a blast to endure. There is a sequel to this movie and I will find it. It's I called will Speed Racer, it. right? That has uh, <laughs> oh, monkey and Jim Jim cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Uh, yeah. Uh, Dixon loves Speed Racer. He's a huge fan. Uh, that movie was an assault on the senses <laughs> and I barely survived. <laughs> That's a back of the box quote. I remember during Unmasking the Idol, you made me feel like such a fucking asshole. Because <laughs> there is a bunch of ninjas that raid an island and and they're all dressed in red and they jump into trees and i was and a bunch of people act like they can't see that i was like oh yeah like a red ninja in a green tree and dixon's fucking colorblind (laughs) and he's like i wouldn't know you fucking prick (laughs) it's like god damn it Uh. Uh, perfect camouflage <laughs> oh my god but yeah there, there's a sequel called the order of the black eagle and i intend to watch it and i, I anticipate it'll be awful as well but it'll be probably entertaining because baboon the baboon's back what could yeah. be more fun than i'm sure vinegar baboon? syndrome is already working on the restoration yeah, they're hard at work yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well i guess the real victim of this week's uh well this and last week's is is dixon having to endure both 11 14 and <laughs> I, I had a good time with unmasking the idol, the idol. It, yeah. it, was, it was fun yeah <laughs> it was very bad but yes. don't watch it by yourself. You know, if you're going to watch it, get some friends together and yeah, laugh at yeah, it. Yeah, watch yeah. it with friends. It's great with friends. Um, yeah, John watches these kind of movies alone and just just cries himself to sleep. Because but, I need yeah. to tell my friends whether they should watch it with me or not, and then I'll know if I truly enjoy it. <laughs> John is slowly becoming um, noir spider, uh, where it's oh, like sometimes bad. I like to burn the matches yeah, down to my fingers. I'm Nicholas Cage something. in yes. Spider-Verse. <laughs> Bring the matches down to my finger oh. just to feel anything again. <laughs> yeah, he's he's supposedly not in the the Spider Verse sequel, not. which makes very me very angry. Yeah, so he was so good in that. Yep. It was, it's probably because he had beef, Dixon. <laughs> she think I've got beef. <laughs> beef. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, if you have not seen a score to settle, that is a very bad, very fun Nick Cage romp. You think beef is an accurate description of what I've got with your father? Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, Dixon, take us home. Uh, John, you did open this episode. Fuck. Uh, I, I thought yeah. I was hosting. Or I no. thought you were hosting. Fuck, <laughs> <I'm drunk. laughs> Fine.
I'll take us home. And that wraps it up here for us at Afterthoughts. We have a recommend for the menu, a recommend for the spy that came in from the cold, and a recommend for Jones Band, which is the <laughs> alternate working title for Unmasking the Idol, <laughs> this bootleg James Bond knockoff with a baboon at the heart of it. Um, I think that, if anything, we've all learned here tonight is that we need more baboons in movies. <laughs> uh we could just sure use them everything. why not why not <laughs> and like you know like throw a baboon into a marvel movie it can't get worse you know you might yeah, as well just honestly, insert sure. some chaos and see how it goes we've you know? all seen nope we know what happens when you put a, <laughs> an apron monkey at the center <laughs> of something <laughs> um yeah but signing off from afterthoughts and our recommender refute segment i've been john garcia our esteemed guest with us tonight mark garcia and Michael Dixon, thanks for putting up with our bullshit. Hey there, movie buffs, TV toughs, and all listeners in between. John here from the Afterthoughts Podcast. I just wanted to drop in at the end of this episode and say thanks for listening. If you've got afterthoughts of your own to share, hit us up. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Afterpod, or jump into a conversation on our Discord server. You can find info for this and more at theafterpod.transistor.fm. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.